really like dealing with lying. One of my favorite approaches is what I call the millimeter acknowledgement. I'm Delaney Rustin, physician and the creator of the three Screenagers movies, and this is the Screenagers podcast. Parenting screen time is one of the most taxing responsibilities that comes with the job, hands down. Today, I'm talking with Charlie Appelstein, who is a social worker and author of No Such Thing as a Bad Kid, who has spent over 40 years working with youth and parents addressing behavior management of young people. We look at rule-breaking, withholding the truth, acting out, what to make of these things, and how as parents to address them effectively. We also explore determining fair consequences for transgressions, including when chores aren't done, All of this is through Charlie's specialty, which is strength-based parenting. That's when we focus on pointing out the positive traits in our kids, their strengths, even when they're breaking a rule. Yes, you heard me right. Here's Charlie describing more about strength-based parenting. It's all about focusing on what your kids do right. It's where you take a negative behavior and you turn it positive. Almost all negative behavior can be reframed into a positive way, which really adds chemicals to a kid's brain, opens up pathways. Let's think of a situation where a girl is at home. She lives with just her dad and she's often on her cell phone. He has to ask a bunch of times for her to put it away to come to dinner. One of the great techniques of strength-based practice, reframing. If I was that father, I might start with a reframe. I love the fact that you have lots of friends and you want to communicate with them. What if it was the opposite? You didn't have anybody. You're popular, you're interesting, and I love the fact that you want to communicate a lot. But I'm a little worried, though. You could be overdoing it just a little. What do you think? Maybe just a little. But it starts with the refrain, isn't it great that you have so many friends and stuff? As Charlie notes, reframing is such a powerful tool. It can be used, for example, with a child who is doing a lot of video gaming and doesn't want to get off the game. You might say... Hey, I know you're frustrated that you have to turn off the game and come to dinner. You don't like letting your friends down. You are an incredibly loyal friend, and I know this is hard for you. Next, I talked to Charlie about the issue of kids and doing chores, particularly when we have to fight to get them off the screens. Let's take a situation in which a boy is supposed to be doing his chores And the mom keeps finding she's come up three times to the room and he is still on his laptop doing some entertainment focused thing. She has that urge to get mad. What's another way that she could approach that situation? And this is this happens every week. One of the terms we look at in behavior management is pattern identification. Very few behaviors happen once. Anytime there's a pattern, a predictable behavior, you want to talk about it, not when it's happening. So if there's a pattern like you just suggested of not doing his chores and hanging out, doing too much with the computer. Talk to the kids sometimes say, look, I get that texting or playing a computer game is a lot more fun than doing your chores. Why do I have you do chores? It's not me against you We're on the same side. That's what I call a connecting statement. It's one of my favorite interventions of all time. Anytime a parent or anybody is having conflict with another person, this isn't me against you We're on the same side. What would you do? What if you didn't do any chores? The house would fall apart. Chores are important. They show that you matter. You feel good when you do them. If you want to negotiate, there could be other times you want to do the chore, but they got to get done. But it's not me against you. 
So what can we do about this? I don't want every Sunday to come or Monday and we get into this fight about chores. Let's see if you and I can strategize a plan. And that can involve different chores. Can be help me helping you now and then. You name it. I think we're both smart enough to figure this out. And so anytime there's a pattern, a predictable problem behavior that you know about, talk about it not when it's happening. I could not agree more. The importance of trying to talk about repeated behaviors in a calm setting. For me personally, when my kids and I would struggle over screen time, I just found I wanted to respond that instant. When eventually we created a weekly meeting at dinner called Tech Talk Tuesdays, we were able to handle so many things more effectively by having this short time to address things that were going awry, but it wasn't in the actual moment things were happening. And when kids do start doing desired behaviors, here's Charlie again. And then if the kid does it, has a little success, then you go crazy. That's so awesome you did that. There's a term we use called amplifying change using speculation. Anytime you get a kid who's stuck, does a little bit better, amplify it. Oh, am I going to call grandma, tell him you did it, and then speculate why. I think you're using the strategies we talked about. I think the maturity thing's kicking in. You always want to amplify successes and speculate sometimes why they're doing better, like maturity or they're using the strategies, because then they walk away going, that's true. I am getting more mature. This idea from Charlie about speculating out loud about the reasons why kids have been able to do the behavior or make a change, I hadn't heard that expressed in this way, amplifying change using speculation. It clearly is exactly in line with strength-based parenting. It gives another time to express positive things that you are seeing in them. I wanted to ask Charlie about this approach when the challenging behavior at hand relates to our teens or young adults when they're acting out towards us. A friend has a daughter who's in college and the mother said, I just can't believe why she wants to treat me so bad or take this negativity towards me. What do you see that as? Adolescence is the second phase of separation individuation. Why are the terrible twos so awful? The little one-year-old who's been the king of the queen is now entering age two, and they can walk, they can talk, cognition improves. It's incredibly exciting, but it's scary as heck. And adolescence is the second phase of separation individuation. Uh, the kid is now maturing, they're becoming their own person, they're leaving home. Who am I? What's my peer group? Am I fitting in? It, it, it's, it's incredibly exciting to be an adolescent, but just like with the terrible twos, it's scary. It's a lot of anxiety. It's a lot of pressure. So who does the adolescent take the pressure, their feelings out on? Mom and dad. I don't like all these feelings. I don't like having to make all these decisions. And who put me in this position? You, mom. You, dad. And so much of the anger and the rudeness and all of that that kids thrust at their parents that's what it is. It's a way of projecting the feelings, their feelings, trying to put it out onto somebody, some kind of blaming, even though it's not the parent's fault. You're supposed to be the one that keeps me safe mm -hmm. and uh, makes me feel good. And I'm not feeling good. And it's your fault. So remembering to yourself that mom and that college daughter who's home for some weeks and just feels like the mother just feels like she's nothing she says or does is appreciated. What is the self-talk that can be helpful that a parent can say to themselves 
when they are experiencing that. They're going through a typical adolescent phase. They're displacing a lot of anger towards me. And this is a good thing, is they're on track developmentally. It's not fun, but it's a good thing. If the kid was nice to you all the time during adolescence, I'd be almost be more worried. Now, some kids are okay, but I'd almost be a little more worried because they need to separate, to individuate. They need to struggle with some of these feelings and take it out on you. So what the parent should be saying to herself, himself, this is not fun. It stinks, but it's very typical. It's a, it's an understandable stage. They're venting some rage and anger towards me as a way of saying, this is a tough stage for me. I'm worried about a lot of things. And you should have been keeping me safe, even though that's not really rational. So then that mom who was trying to problem solve, not too much, a little, because the daughter seemed to want her to, and that didn't go so well. I was trying to work with the mom about also holding some boundaries related to not being treated poorly so that the mom can say, it sounds like this isn't going well, our conversation, and I need some space from this. And then to later on, maybe say, that just didn't feel so good to me as a parent. That's limit setting. So at some point you say, look, I understand what you're going through. This is hard. But you're crossing the line with some of the choices you're making, the rudeness and this and that. So when you do, I'm going to walk away. Mm -hmm. You know, or uh, I'm not going to sit here and take that. I get where it's coming from. And that could be one form of limit setting. That's where you just walk away. I like what you said about, I understand where this is coming from. I think that's what my friend didn't understand. And I think your point is this concept of developmentally correct. This is developmentally, it's strange why there has to be this anger and hostility as opposed to just, I need space, whatever. But there's this way that they need to deflect blaming us for their pain. I always say we're meaning-making machines. They're trying to understand the meaning of this. This is my parents somehow doing this to me. They're trying to figure this out. And on some level, it's a good thing if they're taking it out on you versus their teachers and other people. Mm. That's actually a good thing. And so it's all very understandable. It's been happening for millions of years. There are other kinds of limits you can set. When my daughter was a younger teenager, she really started to overdo it with her rudeness and disrespect and One day I said to her, that's it. And I turned around, I went in the back room and I got on my computer and I created a two page rules of conduct and I made photocopies. I went back to the front where she was. I gave her a copy and I read it to her. I said, I get this as adolescence. I get the whole thing, but you're overdoing it. So here's the deal. For the next two weeks, if you come home and I say, hi, Julie, and you say anything other than hi, dad, you owe me a 20 minute job. Because when you choose to be really disrespectful to me and mom, you're taking away a lot of the good feelings we have in this house. And for the next few weeks, if you do that, I want you to give something back by being nice. You got to do a job, a chore, something. If you end up having to do a lot of those chores, we'll go to family therapy. If you get on the phone when I ask you to do a chore because you've crossed the line, if you do that a couple of times, you lose the phone for a day. And so it was really spelled out that basically this is the technique I call reparation. If they're really being hurtful and they've crossed that line, really overdoing it, they have to repair the damage by giving something back. And a lot of experts like that consequence because it it builds self-esteem. The funny thing about it was she started doing better for a couple of days. And then there was a concert at the middle school and she was in eighth grade. So I walked into the lobby 
teachers, parents started swarming me. They all said the same thing. We love your rules of conduct. She posted online for the whole school community. And to this day, it's 15 years later, I still get emails. Can you send me the rules of conduct? She knew. See, this is an interesting point. She knew she was crossing the line. Mm-hmm. And she liked the idea that I set limits. And then she wanted other people to see it. And so even though that teenager is giving you a lot of crap, they like when you do set limits when it goes too far because they don't feel comfortable inside. She probably posted it in part to say, oh, look at my dad. He's so whatever. But it sounds like it's probably twofold. Maybe she's on the one hand, like when I gave my daughter an excessively long contract related to her getting her first cell phone, she wanted to share it with her friends because she thought four pages was excessive, which I agree. But I say that because it's an interesting take that you bring here is that maybe also there was a way she was saying, hey, my mom's not doing it great, but she's trying something. The nice part of this story is that kids want you to do something, even if they fight you. They want you to not let their rage go unbridled, that they want limits, but there has to be balance. You don't overdo the limits. Limit setting is challenging, that's for sure. One of the things all of us parents have struggled with is the issue of consequences when limits are transgressed. Charlie and I talk about the idea of punishment as opposed to consequences. When it comes to limit setting with kids, we should never punish a kid, ever. A punishment isn't related to what the kid did. What do parents do all the time? Teachers do all the time. Kids acting up, they take their favorite possession away, their phone or whatever. I tell people, Delaney, if you were driving tonight and the cop pulled you over for speeding, this kid excuse me, miss, what's your favorite TV show? The Law and Order. But you can't watch it for a year. What? You'd go ballistic. Yeah, you go home, your kid's acting up, give me the Game Boy. You should only take something if that's the thing that they're having the issue and you've warned the kid about. Consequences are related Why are they important? Because they reinforce values like respect, safety. If a kid really doesn't act that goes against one of the key values, there often can be a a logical consequence, which is related. So what would be related consequences for a kid not doing the chore? Maybe they're grounded to the house until they get it done. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, you're not grounded to be in pain. You're grounded because you owe us a chore. We don't do things until we get things done. Or if it's the computer, they lose the computer for a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. When you take things away from kids, it should be based on two factors, frequency and severity. So let's say this is the first time that the kids pushed it and he's been on the computer instead of doing his chore. The parents should say, look, we talked about this and I told you what's gonna happen if it doesn't. Mm -hmm. What do you think I should do? How about you lose it for a day? And that you lose it for a day and you start doing your chores tomorrow and we're back on track. Kid says, okay. But then you might say, but what happens if the next time, tomorrow, the day after, mm-hmm. you continue to not do your chores? Then maybe you lose it for a week. So I always tell parents and anybody who is setting limits, just think about the highway. If you're pulled over for speeding, they don't give you a ticket right away. They check your record. And if this is the first time you've been pulled mm-hmm. in a long time and you're just going a little too fast, they give you a slap on the wrist. If it's the 10th time you've been pulled over for going 73 in a 60, it's the 10th time in a week you're zapped because that's frequency. So you find out somehow that they've been on their phone at night, sneaking in the room and, and you say, what should the consequence be? And they say, I don't know. I don't know. 
negotiate, work it through. Now the kid's much more likely to accept it if he had or she had some say in it, problem solved together. Charlie, let's get a little more granular. There is a lot of benefit in saying to our kids and teens, what would you do as a consequence? I do want to understand a little bit better when it works well, why? You're empowering them. You're saying you matter. So having them think through what a fair consequence would be is saying your opinion matters in this? You matter to me. Your opinion Mm -hmm. matters. I value you. Mm -hmm. That enhances relationship because really what makes kids behave better in almost any setting? Relationships. Almost Mm -hmm. all the research on school discipline says the same thing now. You want a kid to behave well in school, build great relationships with them. And I tell parents when I do my parent training, it's the same thing. But the problem is a lot of very smart parents misinterpret that, that if I set limits, then the relationship can be hindered. And then the other issue that we talked about earlier, you might have a very good relationship, but they're at a developmental time in their life or stressed or all these things that they're going to take it out on you. You have to have this kind of knowledge base that says a good relationship with teenagers could be that they're being mean to you all the time and you're not overdoing it and you're applying balance. What if the child or the teen says, I don't know what we should do. Let's just play that out. So let's say they don't come up with a consequence. Choices. Mm. If the two or three-year-old doesn't want to take the medicine, Mm -hmm. you want the big spoon or the little spoon? I think I'd like the little spoon, but you might be a big spoon. I'm not sure. I'll take the big spoon. So if a kid cannot come up with an option, then let me throw a few choices at you. Because then you increase the Mm -hmm. odds that they'll pick one or the other. Strength-based practice, which is empowering, building relationship, not misusing power, not misusing your authority. And so you can still hold kids accountable, but without misusing power. And so when you empower, like, you, let me give you a few choices. You tell me what you think makes sense. That says, I trust you. I care about you. I think you can make a decision here, which really builds the kid from the inside out because the strength-based stuff, it's all about building them from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah. And if they won't, then sometimes you just have to say, I'm going to have to pick this one. They're going to be angry. That's just part of life. If a kid is supposed to come home at midnight, but doesn't come home till 6 a.m., that's severity. That's serious. You scared the heck out of us for six hours. And that could be maybe a week grounding. Mm-hmm. And you're grounded not for pain because you lost trust and you have to earn it back. But oftentimes with teenagers, when you take something away, like a possession, or you ground them taking their freedom, they should be empowered to come up with what the grounding should be, what the consequence should be, based on the fact that they know you use severity and frequency. It's a very fair way of setting limits with kids. So often we don't have preempted discussions about consequences. So let's say out of the blue, right? You couldn't reach them. It was 2 a.m. They were supposed to come home at 12. That next day when things have calmed down, how would an ideal conversation, what are you hoping to achieve when you sit down with them the next day? Well, first, you always want to listen to the kid. What was that about last night? Why did you come in late? Really scared the heck out of me and mom. What went on there? What's going on? Sometimes you find something really bad happened beforehand. The kid comes in three hours late. You're all mad at the kid. You found out he was helping a kid get home who was drunk or something like that Mm -hmm. or fell down or something. And and you feel so guilty. So you always want to listen before you even think of getting into consequences with your kids. You got to really listen. Then talk about how you felt about it. It's not me against you. I love you. I was scared. I was nervous. Oftentimes, when you ask kids to come up with a consequence, they give themselves 
more severe than you will give them. Now you're in the nice position of taking it back. Let's say they really were helping a friend and the phone was out of batteries and they were stuck. You might say, we understand. Oh, wow. That was a really awful situation. So we're not going to do anything, but try and call us next time, will you? Try and call us next time. But I, I don't think we need to do anything because we trust you and we love you. But if yeah. you do it again next week, help a friend, but don't call us. Yeah. Then maybe we'll need to talk about that. And by the way, when you talk to kids, especially around limit setting, you got to be really careful about telling your kids, I'm disappointed in you. I'm upset with you. I'm angry. You really want to focus more. I'm angry about the choice you made. I'm disappointed. Because sometimes if a kid's going through a rough time and you're constantly telling them that you're disappointed in them, you're mm -hmm. upset with them, they can literally take it on and stop trying. What it speaks to is that if a kid hears a negative adjective one too many times, they can take it on and stop trying. One of the topics that I wanted to get Charlie's insight on has to do with situations in which kids do not tell the truth. And I give Charlie a scenario about a boy who lies about their whereabouts. A 10-year-old was at their friend playing video games and they didn't come home on time and they lie and just say, I had to stay at school late. And then you find out that they were actually over at a friend's playing video games. I really like dealing with lying. One of my favorite approaches is what I call the millimeter acknowledgement. Take that example you just gave that they were lying about something and you know it. I might say to the kid, hey, can I ask you something? You're saying one thing. I suspect something else possibly could have happened. Is it possible that maybe what you just told me about where you were is a little less correct? Not a hundred, just a little less correct than what could have possibly maybe just happened. Because you're a great kid and I know you don't want to get in trouble or anything. Is it? Could you be a little less correct about that? I'm not sure. I can't tell you how many times that's worked. What does a kid respond? As a kid, because what often happens is they go, I might have been a little wrong. I might not have. And once they give you a little, that's the whole thing. You don't have to go step by step. Once they give you a little, you then say, that's it, and, that, and you move on. And they like that. So-and-so swore at me at school, and I threw the book. They just swore me out of the blue. Is it slightly possible that perhaps right before she, you could have made a little bit of a mistake, might have been a little provocative? I'm not saying it happened big, but it's, I might have been a little provocative. Then I can see that maybe. Yeah. Almost any time there's a lie, yeah. a big, bold lie, oftentimes if you can get them to give a little bit of an admission, that's a lot for a kid. And then they're fine with you going the whole way for framing lying. When you're a little less correct with me, because I never use the L word. I don't like bad words. So lying, cheating, resistance, uh, lazy. I don't use any of those bad words. So if a kid's lying, I, a little less correct. And so I might say to a kid, when you're a little less correct with me, it takes away the trust that we have. What you're saying to me is that you're trying to protect yourself because you, you don't trust that if you tell me the truth, I won't overreact. So I like the fact that you protect yourself. You're looking out for yourself by being a little less correct about what really happened. But that's a breakdown in our relationship. And I feel bad that you don't trust me enough, I think, to be totally honest and stuff. So I think we need to talk about that. We need to, because this isn't a you problem. This is an us problem. If you're being a little less correct with me, then I, I, we need to look into that. Are you afraid that I'm going to come down too hard? Have I had that in the past? Can we explore that? And so I, I love reframing lying as they're protecting themselves, that it's an issue of trust between you and the kid and that you need to work on that. You called them bad words. Yes. Can you explain that concept? We should not be using rude, manipulative, lazy, just looking for attention. If a kid literally hears these words, they can take them on and stop trying. 
If one teacher says to another teacher in May, you're getting Billy next year, really rude, disrespectful, non-compliant kid. Already the shield's up. How about you say, you're getting Billy next year. He's suffered a tough background. He's going to try and push you away by choosing to be rude and defiant because he can't get close to people right now. He just doesn't trust them. But he made some gains this year, and I think you're perfect. You'll understand him. You'll help him. It's, I have literally seen kids over the last 42 years change their life on a dime when we took a negative behavior and turned it positive. I had a kid who, was, who, who, I had a kid who argued all the time. We reframed it that she'd be a great lawyer. She's great at arguing. And then we built a little law office for her in the school. And so when she wanted to argue, she could go to a law office. You don't argue in the classroom, you argue in the courtroom. Changed her whole life. You know, kids who act out a lot are often put down for looking for attention. I can't tell you how many times I've taken a tough kid aside and said, I need to apologize to you for anyone who ever put you down for looking for attention. I'm not sure you always got enough in life and I'm not blaming your parents. Maybe it was just bad luck all the way around. But the fact you act out for attention sends a message loud and clear to the world that you're someone of value and you deserve more. And I love that about you. I've seen hardened teenagers break down in tears, sob, and change their lives forever because of that refrain. We have come full circle in the episode today. We started with talking about reframing and we're ending at that point. I encourage listeners to try to do one reframe with a child in your life. Ultimately, you will be highlighting a strength they have, and that is great. Strength-based parenting is such a wonderful approach, and I often like to call it strength focus, for it truly is all about focusing our attention to the things that are going well and saying these out loud. This episode has been chock full of effective parenting strategies, and I can't thank Charlie Appelstein enough for his being on the show. Thanks for listening today. And if you can tell one friend about the Screenagers podcast, that really helps spread the word and helps people find the show. Be sure to go to ScreenagersMovie.com to find the show notes from this episode, learn about screening our movies, and sign up for my weekly blog about parenting in the screen age, now in its eighth year. This Screenagers podcast episode was produced by me, your host, Delaney Rustin, Lisa Tab, and Alan Gofinski. Alan is also our sound editor. 